Okay, should we order some daiquiris? Of course we should. Why we should? Why would, is that really a question? I don't. <laughs> this is like a fully weaponized New Orleans corner that has curbside daiquiri and jeans. Oh boy. I have spent many questionable mornings at this very corner. And by morning, I do mean 3 a.m. Can I taste your Hypnotic Nights, please? Yes. <laughs> so what is in Hypnotic Nights? Hypnotic, all I know is tequila's in it. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and it could be rather hypnotic, depending upon your day. <laughs> Sorry, what about a Hypnotic 2 p.m.? There's a combination called What the Fuck? Oh, I want that! What is that? It'll be a orange and truffle. Wait, did you say it was called What the Fuck? Yeah. And I would like uh, a What the Fuck. <laughs> yeah. Great. Extra shot? Uh, <laughs> extra shot of what? New Orleans is so old, so fine, so big in the culture, so vast in its disappointments and its triumphs, that it feels weird to mention just one side of the kaleidoscope. But I will call out a single thing that has long attracted me to the city. New Orleans is like Disneyland for day drinkers. In other cities, we sometimes have to apologize a bit on this show for asking our guests a drink before sundown. When editor Taffy Mokunyadze told this week's guest, the food lawyer Pepper Bowen, that we were interested in a little midday hard alcohol, she wrote back immediately, Sounds festive. That is my kind of lawyer in my kind of town. From Luminary Media and Roads and Kingdoms, this is Nathan Thornburg, and you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. Back at the recording suite, just also happens to be my hotel room, with these big gulps. Oh, stop. (laughs) They're not not big gulps. I know, I come from New York, and I'm just like, I want the American experience of the 32-ounce, the 64-ounce drink this is not that this is a medium bad of cola yeah, yeah. Is it, this is a medium uh, what the fuck daiquiri literally yes from this is the name of it uh from curdside daiquiri so tell me about daiquiris in new orleans because i guess it's got a lot of baggage outside of new orleans but it's an actual does it it's really? like a thing well a daiquiri it's like a tourist drink in hawaii or something oh yeah you, it's, it's totally different context here fair what is it Something to get through a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> because so, it's cold. It's like a slushy. Yes. Slurpy. Yes. It's like a slushy and it comes in, in gallon sizes for like 20 bucks. You can, I don't know, like five people can drink out of that thing and, and you're good to go. So they're affordable. They are accessible. They're tasty. Who doesn't like tasty drinks? They are tasty. They are very sweet. They're kind of like a snow cone. I mean, I guess I'm describing a Slurpee as if I've never had a Slurpee before. But. <laughs> well, so Slurpees or Icy's, right? Icy's only yeah. come in in two flavors. Right. That's right. There was a lot of flavors of daiquiri. We had a lot of choices. Exactly. Which is why we had them make what we would call the Long Island iced tea of, of daiquiris. daiquiris. Where she just basically went down the row and just like <laughs> chugged a bit from each flavor into the cup. And it is what she calls the what the fuck. She said it was a popular Yes. Drink. And I was very excited about that because I was just going to get one of the flavors in the daiquiri and then she gave me this other option. And who doesn't want that? Yeah, why limit yourself to <laughs> exactly. just the um, hypnotic night or whatever that is? Yes, um, hypnotic nights um, or jungle juice or orange 190 or 
Oh, sh- tropical something or other. Tropical passion. Uh huh. Yeah. Yes, they're all very. Yeah, they got it. They got a good. Uh, very cop- alluring. Uh, good copywriter. Uh, and are those like? <laughs> are those standard across all the daiquiri joints? Because the drive-through daiquiri joint and the walk-up daiquiri joint, those are all a thing, right? They're kind of archetypal. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, so in order to have a drive-through, uh, it really depends upon what part of town you are, because you need more land in order to have that sort of footprint, right? So most of in the city you will find are the walk-up types, but when you get out to even you as as close as Jefferson or to the east or, or, or like Gentilly, where they've got a little bit more room or what areas it would be called uh, technically suburbs, those have a greater opportunity to be a drive-through. right. I mean, we did a drive-through. We were just on foot. This is true. We went in. We came right back out. We only wanted a daiquiri. They had seating at the bar. Like you could sit and like just chill out with your daiquiri for. Well, you could, and you could also order food, right? So especially when you get middle of the night, it's it's a long walk to the walk-up daiquiri. So (laughs) you need maybe an order of fries. Yeah. I mean, it's right next to Jean's Po' Boy, which is also um, tasty goodness. Super good. I had a catfish po' boy that yes i mean like this daiquiri is also twice as much as i should have but it's it's just <laughs> i gotta i gotta get acclimated you know to, well i, I mean it, the thing about jeans is that jeans is in a neighborhood where that has changed around it and the po' boy itself is defined by being able to feed a poor boy that there would be it's in the goddamn that, name yeah, we're yes. so not very clever with our naming conventions so um the whole idea of having a, a lot of food for a little bit of money is really the point, right? So even though there are some parts of town, and in fact, not terribly far from jeans, where you can go and get a six inch po' boy for like $12, I don't know why anybody would want to do that. But by superimposing an idea that that is standard onto a po' boy, is really counterintuitive. Right. So I have the most asshole of asshole complaints, which is to say, like, I spent not a lot of money for a lot of food. (laughs) (laughs) They gave me too much food and I gave them too little money. So, well, Uh, you know, there are worse things in this world, right? uh, There are. And I'm going to, I'm going to, keep my complaints quiet because it was freaking delicious. The what the fuck, I would say the jury's still a little more out. For the number of different colors that went into this drink, it has a single flavor profile, hmm. which makes me think that the fancy names notwithstanding, like daiquiri flavor is kind of daiquiri flavor. Maybe with some little like... You mean sugar? Yeah. Is that, okay. the, is that the flavor we're looking at? Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. And we're looking at a pretty interesting salmon shade of, of orange. It's pretty pretty cool. And uh, Jungle Juice should have Everclear in it. There was at least the Tropical Passion she was saying had rum. I'm not sure... If the um, 190, well, not it's not one I oh, orange 190, what that had in it, but something something good, I'm sure. <laughs> well, and, and the, the hypnotic nights had tequila. Exactly. So, so we're just like going down the well, it, soaking it all up, and we did turn down the extra shot on top. We did. Well, mainly because it was it's difficult to choose which one. Oh, that was a problem. I thought it was because it was one thirty p.m. and okay. We're well, that could pro- also be a professional problem. adults speak <laughs> speak for. Speak for you. I, I have nothing to do except to drink five kinds of liquor in one um, styrofoam cup. So, um, no, I, that's not true. I'm here uh, to speak with you. I've come to New Orleans to do it. And I'm very excited to be here. So tell me who you are and, and uh, 
what you do and then we'll get right into it. So I am Pepper Bowen. I am director, founding director of Culinaria Center for Food Law Policy and Culture. I am a an environmental attorney by trade, a food lawyer by choice, and my personal mission in life is to bring food to the consciousness of people who eat. Okay, food law. Yes. I mean that's kind of what caught uh, Taffy Mukunyatsi in my eye for sure. Is like <laughs> uh, food law. And back to the daiquiri. <laughs> <laughs> what what is the legal underpinning of this daiquiri? Um, Food, as odd as it may sound to most people who are not, we've never had a contracts class. Uh, food is one of the most regulated and one of the most contractualized items that we have. Some of the earliest litigation has been around food. I love telling people that part of the reason that we still have these huge issues, delineating whether a tomato is a fruit or a vegetable, really boils down to the taxes that were going to be levied in the in New York Harbor. And th- by calling it a vegetable, they got away with paying less taxes than paying on fruit. And we also, I don't know how many people have followed the, the latest discussions coming out of the USDA around dairy. So what is considered milk is... Does it have to come from a cow? Does it have to call from this a This is going to gross teat? me out. Is this one of these like no, nasty this is, like what's in your milk stories? No, it's not about what's in your milk. It's about what gets to be called milk. Is soy milk milk? Is almond milk milk? Oh, right. It's not milk milk because dairy farmers are upset that they're calling it milk. It's and not they're milk. trying to, weren't they doing that, trying to do that in the farm bill or something? Like keep the, you know, soy not milk people. milk. Where do you fall on the milk, not milk? <laughs> well, so, do you have it, or do you just follow the law? You don't have a professional so, opinion. A professional opinion. I think that that we have invested quite a lot of time and energy in a naming convention. And again, I live here, where we are very straightforward. However, from a marketing perspective, I do understand that it's not nearly as interesting to drink soy juice. Can we just call it like milky almonds? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, then it sounds like somebody with a cataract or something. Yeah, see, (laughs) it's all about the marketing. How do you position this thing? And how do coconuts feel about this? Because they've long had coconut milk inside of them, even though it doesn't come from an animal. So, Mm. and especially for the vegetarians and vegans of the world, their ideas around substitutions of proteins and and other things that meat eaters eat or use so like a veggie burger is it a burger or is it just a veggie patty and who wants to eat a veggie patty it's not (laughs) nearly as interesting we had an amazing conversation with a vegan chef in australia shannon martinez some episodes ago and she was sort of saying that nobody wants to eat a spicy soy log but they will totally go for the vegan chorizo safe um, <laughs> I don't now. I don't know if there's paper behind that or a legal, you know, a legal well, discussion I'm, he has to have. I don't think the chorizo, you know, board of Australia is giving her a bunch of shit, but but people do. Yeah, well, spicy soy log is a little lacking in flair. All right, so culinaria. Um, <laughs> I noticed the change. (laughs) (laughs) Spicy soy log, retired. All right, so the culinaria exists to, is it mainly education? I mean, you're obviously, you're taking casework around food or you're just trying to promote the idea that people should understand? So we've got... um a couple of different arms or branches, as it were. The way that we started was really doing a lot of education. So on the food circuit, talking with folks about food access, food justice, food security, food sovereignty, 
what all three of those things mean and how do they intersect with the world in which we live. I'm looking at it, trying to explain it to people because most folks don't really understand something as ubiquitous as food security or food insecurity as it were, right? So when I talk to college students, I explain to them that food security is not necessarily about not having enough to eat. It's about not having consistently enough to eat. And if you think about that time at the end of the semester where your food plan or your meal plan is running out of money and you're not entirely sure if you're going to have enough. Meanwhile, there's somebody who's not necessarily been eating off of theirs and they've got more than enough, right? So it's sort of an ebb and flow. This also works in the marketplace when you are at work and there's always this one guy who is first when there's free lunch brought in and last bringing home stuff when free lunch is brought in because there's just not enough to consistently support self and family with food. Now, this is not to say that they're never paid or that they never have food. It just means that there is an ebb and a flow. Sometimes you have more money than you think. Sometimes you have an unexpected expense and trying to pay for a blown alternator the same week that you've got to buy groceries becomes complicated. Right. These are some of the wonderful choices that our great republic forces well, some of its citizens into. Well, I do into. what I can, just to the <laughs> consciousness, people, just yeah. to the consciousness. And so what, we, what we've also done is the mission is to work around policy. So expanding the laws in order to support food access, but also creating policies that will create more food security. And so that work is really around ensuring that our local economy and our local food production, our local food businesses all have some sort of an outlet to to advocate for them in some way, shape, or form. As an attorney, I do work in small businesses, so business organizations as well. So that means standing up small businesses, working with maybe a pop-up who wants to move into a brick and mortar, helping folks with copyrights and trademarks. So think if the daiquiri shop ever wanted to put a label on the outside of the daiquiri that said, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> to advertise this fine drink that they've <laughs> to sold advertise us. advertise this fine drink. Or, you know, back to the milk, right? So labels on the outside as well as ingredients. All of those sorts of things are, are things that I do. So getting, the, getting this food product to market, even for small batch producers. And I also work in environmental law, which brings us to the third arm of culinaria, which is working on a long-term project that's attempting to identify the impacts that lead and heavy metal contaminated water has on urban grown and processed food. And the objective is really to understand how it is that the water is absorbed by or continues to be held by the plant. So um, to take us half a step back, when I say urban grown or processed food, urban grown is pretty simple. You got dirt, you put the, the seed in the ground and you grow it. But USDA defines processing as anywhere from washing to butchery. So let's just say for the sake of argument that you live in an area like New Orleans where you do have lead and heavy metals in the soil. So raised beds are required. Okay. What happens if you have this great soil and you use the water, which is also suspected to have lead and heavy metal contaminants in it in order to irrigate it? Mm. What if you import organic, right? So you know it's clean, you know it's grown the best that way it could be, and then you wash it in the same water that's got this lead and heavy metals. What's the nutritional makeup of that? At the end of the day, are you just sitting the lead and heavy metals on the top and consuming them more readily? Or is this a matter of, well, most of it just kind of gets shaken off. Does it work like that? And if you're growing the plant by using this water, 
yeah, it's pretty obvious that you need water to grow a plant, but how much is absorbed? And science will tell you that most produce that's grown, no matter what the soil content, right? So whatever comes up, where is it absorbed by the root structure will mm -hmm. stay in either the stem or the leaves. Which is fine unless you're eating a leafy green. <laughs> if you're eating the, the fruit or the flower and then you wash it, then what? Right. So the theory is that yeah. the folks who are most impacted or would be most impacted by the lead and heavy metal contaminants will be in areas where they're already marginalized. Now, this sounds really simple. Why does anybody care? What difference does it make? Most of the time, it's low levels of lead specifically. Right. We'll talk about that for a minute. And those low levels of lead can be combated with a filter. Say $15 a month for a filter. Which, for the water. There's no lettuce filter to get the lead out of lettuce once it's been <laughs> no, grown. There's not. No. All right. But $15 isn't a lot of money until you don't have $15. Mm -hmm. And so what happens to those folks who either buy a filter and then don't change it? Mm. Are they getting concentrated levels now in their water? What happens if you just don't have the money for a filter at all? Are you getting a consistent level over time since lead is bioaccumulative is there some sort of a, a way that your body is absorbing not only lead from the soil but also lead from the water where individually there would not be broaching a threshold of some sort of toxicity but together they do for anybody who's listening and is thinking to themselves why is she prattling on about this lead early markers of lead contamination yeah uh will manifest in children in things like learning disabilities, in things like uh, neurological disorders, uh, inattentiveness, impulse control disorders, aggression, anger. Super pernicious, right? Just like exactly. a range of tough outcomes right. that come from something that cannot be seen or right. smelled or yes. detected in any way except through like professional measurements. Right. Not available to the communities that are ingesting all this lead. Exactly. But more importantly, when you think about just those markers, those are also the same things that we hear are markers for ADHD. And in communities where folks may not be able to medicate a child in order to offset the inattentiveness, the aggression, or what have you, or even to get them special help for neurological disorders that don't manifest until they need those fine motor skills in schools, what happens to them? Well, it just so happens that a lot of them are being suspended. There are a lot of them are being expelled and that puts them out of a school and on a different pipeline altogether. So the idea of environmental justice is that these folks will have the same opportunity just by knowing, giving them the information so that they can then make decisions that are best for themselves as opposed to continuing around this circle of triage and trying to figure out, okay, well, my goodness, if there's something wrong with my kid today, what do I need to do tomorrow? And how do I make sure that we continue just to maintain? Because that alone stymies socio and economic growth. How do you develop policy around that, especially when you talk about like urban gardening mm -hmm. uh, and things that are actually can be a form of empowerment? You want to you want Radicalization, create... baby. <laughs> right. I mean, you want to create the context where people can grow their own food, where they live, 
And yet New Orleans, it's not Flint, but it's still a place where there's a lot of bad stuff in the soil and the water. And how do you square those things so they don't have to buy everything from a supermarket, but also are not exposing themselves to this cycle of, kind sure. of poisoning and bad outcomes? So first things first is that it, when we start talking about urban farmers, we're not generally talking about marginalized people. Mm. I would love that to be the case. I would love for marginalized people to be growing tomatoes on their front stoop and, you know, have some greens rolling in the backyard. But generally, these are people who don't have the time or the energy in order to invest in not only making sure that there aren't any pests on the the plant and that it does grow and things are harvested quickly or in a timely cycle. Generally, when we're talking about urban farmers, we're talking about people who have dedicated their lives to this space. So they're great people who, for the most part, are transplanted because they want to improve the communities in which they are now living. This is an act of resistance. This is an act of unity. This is about them making sure that the communities around them have and that they see and that they can then be involved and invested. Mm -hmm. This is part of that, like also part of that post-Katrina creative class that kind of come in from different quarters of the country. I mean, it's hard to generalize, but... Right. But again, we didn't say all. We did say most of the folks who are are in this space. But again, these are folks who really do have the best interests of the communities where they are at heart. What ends up happening is that they are not able to maintain their gardens. And so one of the first steps is looking at land access. So who has rights to land? No matter what side of the coin you're looking at, who has rights to land, who should be able to maintain access to it, and how long do you get to have access to it? So if it's a piece of land that's owned by the city, the city then rents it to a farmer. The farmer puts their blood, sweat, and tears into this, thinking that you know in a year or two, we're actually going to start seeing some getting some traction. We're going to be able to open up the doors. Folks from the neighborhood can come in and they can harvest whatever they want, or we can sell commercially to restaurants or at farmer's markets or what have you. Um, but a developer wants the land, and so the farmer's got to go. That then diminishes the amount of food access in that community for those who would have participated. But that is also a policy decision. Is it more valuable for us to put a condo than it is for us to have figs growing in what at one point was a vacant lot? We also look at issues around water access. So if you are a grower, can you actually get to water in order to water the crops? Or do you have to run, say, a hose from the neighbor across the street in order to irrigate your crops? Um, Can you build a structure of any sort, like a shed, right, in order to hold whatever equipment it is that you would use in order to plow the strip or the the space, right? So we're not talking huge commercial. We're talking about the size of a house plot. Right. You still can't do that with a tiny spade by hand. So whatever it is that you need, fertilizers and additional seeds, maybe some starts, can you put something like that on the land itself? All policy. And what about a toilet? Right. So I mean, you don't think about it, but until you got to go, <laughs> you're out there, you're working, you got to leave. And it's, it's a job for these people. So think about you are at work. You suddenly got to go to the bathroom and you got to drive home to do it. Or you got to get in your car and find a local space where you can, a public space where you can go. 
All of those things are issues that are impacting urban farmers. And it is also impacting them, what is in the soil and what is in the water that they are using. And so then it's a matter of, all right, well, we identify these things and then we see what it is that we can do. Culinaria's objective is that we will actually bring the folks who are in these areas or most impacted to the table and allow them to use their lived experience and tell us what will work. Now, this is a departure from the way that we ordinarily look at things because uh, those of us with multiple degrees always think we know best. You're not trying to hear from anybody else what they need. But, exactly. Yeah. You know, history has proven that uh, often folks who are most impacted by these issues have the best answers because they spend the most time thinking about it, right? So if you live in a flood zone, the one thing that is consuming your dinner conversation is when is the next flood? Is it going to rain tomorrow? How is it that we're going to protect the house? And what can we do? What should the city be doing? What should the government be doing? What should old man Frank across the street be doing in order to make sure that my house doesn't flood? So I'm thinking that since these uh, issues stay first and foremost in their minds, that they are probably best positioned to have conversations about how it is that they would like to see policies and laws written in order to make sure that they are protected. Do you feel like you have partners here in New Orleans, like in the in the government? Do do people recognize these, you know, the need for food justice on some level? On some level, um, we're getting there. You have a podcast um, called Green Pepper. Mm. It's, it's green, it's pepper, it's your name. It's, yes, it's all about um, environmentalism and you, policy. You, it's a thing. You said that you brought a city councilwoman on as, as like yeah. your first guest. Yeah. Uh, it's like push polling. <laughs> you're, like, <laughs> you're both having an interview with her, but also making sure she's aware of the things that you want yeah, to get done and that culinary cares judgy. about. But no. <laughs> Very clever. I would I would do the same. Well, so what I find is that especially for lawmakers, they really do want as much as we give them crap, they really do want to do whatever it is that their constituents want for them to do. But the problem is that sometimes they are divorced from their actual constituents. They are also sometimes funded by folks whose uh, desires and needs are at odds with their actual constituents. But by giving them the information, they can make a more intelligent decision. So when we talked uh, with Councilperson Wen, she was confused about what food policy even is. But she's got a nonprofit where over the summers, as they run summer camps, kids can go and pick their own food for free because she recognizes that not everybody in the community has enough resource or accessibility to fresh food. That is food policy in action. Right. She just didn't know it. Exactly. Per se. Yeah. And so we do have folks who within the government do have a clearer understanding of what it means. But we also have some who don't recognize that it's a problem at all. Uh, But these are also folks who've never been at the mission and watched folks who are coming from work to get a free meal. These are also folks who are clearly not having to pay for medications and rent. (laughs) without insurance, right? These are folks who are driven everywhere and so they don't know how much gas costs or what does it mean to get a parking ticket and then be open to being not only booted but towed and and how long does it take and if i've got an hourly wage job what does that look like for me so a lot of the folks who don't 
make those mental connections are not making them because they're bad people. They're making it because they just don't have enough information. They are super out of touch. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Um, uh, so was there a moment for you where you, how did this click for you? Because you, you had, you have multiple degrees, you've had multiple careers, you're in law and you decide that food policy is kind of your passion. When did that happen? Like what, what did you see? So it was an evolution. I like to tell people I've been eating all my life and, <laughs> and it's important to me that I not die of starvation, which is true, but- You're going the, for the real universal themes Yes, there. yes, <laughs> so <laughs> because that it's on every level. Law is a second career for me, as you've already mentioned. I looked around after uh, thinking that I was going to go to law school and become an immigration attorney. I figured out I could not do that. Why? Uh, it is family law across international borders okay which means that if I lose custody for a parent who is genuinely trying to do their best I have lost custody for a parent across an international border where they may never see their child again and I could not be involved in that you as a sentient human being did not want to be a part of <laughs> terrible outcomes for, well yeah and that yes. and I mean you think about the separations at the borders that mm. just happened this whole idea of now we as a country are saying that it'll be traumatic to reunite a child with their parent I could not I mean and I recognize you know that it's people like me who really do have that palpable understanding of what it means to be away from a child I could not sleep at night. I would be an absolute walking ball of nerves. And that is the last thing you need in a courtroom is somebody who's breaking into tears talking about, oh my God, they're separated from their families. It's just not the place for it. Uh, so. And yet, <laughs> and yet so appropriate. Uh, but no, yeah, I, I no, agree. You're, you're I agree. probably right. All right. So, so, yeah, so immigration was not law. right. But uh, since I had worked as my last uh, stint in IT was as a project manager, which I actually loved. I loved being a project manager. But in business, a lot of times they, the, the whole idea is like, do what you love and you'll never work again. And so the the scholarship at the time was suggesting to look around at the things that you do for free and those are the, that's the thing that you love figure that out because that's where you need to be and I'd already made this unconscious shift into eating with the seasons because I had a couple kids and it was important to me that every memory around food was super important a testament to my type a personality baking you know little muffins and quick breads every morning so that when they awoke that they would have the smell oh. of you know something I know yeah, I know me sick. I can't yeah, I, I can't keep up with that kind of game well you know making my own <laughs> granola I and just, yeah, I basically like my morning routine doing is the like, most is like foie gras for children I just like take cheer and put it down a plastic tube <laughs> down their throats and then, and then kick them out milk. the door and pour some milk. Yeah. It's, It'll be fun. Off you go. Animal cruelty using Cheerios <laughs> and children. So They like it. Is it cruelty if they you, like you it? You keep your fresh baked goods to yourself. I oh, know. Man. But that's I know. Right. It's I, awful. My, my kids ain't listening to this podcast. Anyway, so <laughs> they'll never know there was a better life out okay. there. <laughs> Available for them just over <laughs> the fence. But no, so what very much is the same way that I got into IT through telecommunications, I got into environmental law through food that I figured, all right, well, there's got to be something. And so when I went into law school, there had just been all this uh, hoopla around 
organic farmers in the Northeast Corridor being sued by Monsanto for the for their intellectual property and love this world. Yeah. And I was horrified. I was horrified because it was wrong. It was evil. They were bad people. And now that I work in intellectual property, I'm just like, oh, I get it. But it's still kind of messed up. It My first summer in law school, we actually spent the summer abroad because you know, when I was young and I was screwing up, I wasn't screwing up the right ways. And part of that summer was doing an internship with an NGO where I worked on the proposed EU regulation around uh, genetically modified organisms and what that would mean to a seed bank that was collecting heirloom seeds mm. and indigenous seeds, right? So these are things you never stop to think about, right? but super duper important for folks who've been growing the same tomatoes since the dawn of time. If their tomatoes are not cataloged, by definition, they are not legal. Right. Which means that they are now illegal, and to grow them is an illegal act. And I know it sounds stupid. Yeah. Well, especially for a fruit like the tomato. <laughs> exactly. Because if we were talking taxation, that would make far more sense. <laughs> totally. But, but now yeah. you, you had also grown up uh, or you'd went to high school in very small town, Louisiana. I did. And you saw, I mean, you were telling me that the farming yeah. uh, industry had kind of started to die yeah. I mean, is that connected? Because that's all policy, too. I mean, a lot it of the is. stuff that's happened uh, to family farms, to the ability sure. of people to live in rural areas and mm -hmm. come somehow expect to have a multi-generational business around food. <laughs> it's very Green Acres. Uh, and I don't know if anybody but me gets that reference. But I'm here. I'm, <laughs> I'm raising my hand. Green Acres. I could I, I could even sing the song. Yeah, Matt. Where uh, <laughs> and and I actually I looked it up because I, I I couldn't remember what like who these people were, but I could hear the song in my head. He was a lawyer who moved to Hooterville. Oh, that was I that did not remember that Hooterville. I, yeah, I, I'm well, no I wonder Zazai the boar lived there. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, uh, in order to live off the land and um, what we've ended up doing is that we've uh, romanticized as well as de simultaneously demonizing living off of the land and growing things because we cannot live without food, but we do not want to pay farmers to grow the food in a way that will actually sustain us all. We want to grow food in a way that supports bigger businesses. Uh, if anybody but me sits around watching food documentaries and what it is that we're doing with soy and corn and and how uh, we are you, you supporting this industrial food complex that is not keeping us any more well fed if fed at all and it's certainly not helping with the nutrition value of the food itself i can honestly say as much as i spent time in small town louisiana th that their plight was not at the forefront of my mind at the time now that I am doing this professionally, I'm seeing a lot of correlations, right? So the same way that you look back and you're just like, oh, now I get it. So that was the reason to have that experience, that there are not just folks who are not being able to grow on their land, but also folks who are losing their land altogether. So it's not only the generational farming, it's also a way of life. It is exactly the same thing as folks who maybe suffered an economic downturn and are then losing their home for you know of the past two or three generations yeah 
for whatever reason that they're losing it is inconsequential. It's traumatic, it's heartbreaking to look at these folks who don't have any other skill set. It's not like their farm gets shut down and they can just go and you know, build rockets. They genuinely only do this thing because that's what their family did. And I find it unconscionable that that we are we as a collective are complicit with the way that we treat farmers as well as teachers and the other folks who make this country run. Well, and then we bring a lot of our kind of larger societal bullshit to some of these farm issues too, because like there's a class action lawsuit going on now about poor quality soybeans that have been sold mm -hmm. en masse to African-American farmers specifically. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah. we just realize you can't untangle food no. from all of these other things it's like no. uh, i mean like you're saying with with the the policy around make sure we have access to clean water and clean food like down here like, who doesn't want that yeah we, <laughs> this is a bipartisan issue we all want to eat right. we all want to drink clean water specifically right and what the fuck daiquiris uh more generally <laughs> more generally um, no uh, and in fact i was um it was a panelist early last week and i was saying then that a lot of the co-ops that sprung up during the civil rights era in parts of rural Mississippi and parts of rural uh, Louisiana and Georgia and some of the other southern states of black farmers were necessary, but the ones that succeeded and sustained are the anomaly at the height of black farmer land ownership. We were talking about 14% of all of the land that was owned by farmers. Now we are down to less than two, and some studies will tell you less than 1% Get out. of all of the land is owned by black farmers. And there was a, a video, what's happening to the black farmer? Where did the black farmer go? And part of that is not just the quality of the product that they're being sold. Part of it is the access to loans that they don't get. It is the... Uh, I'm going to call it coercion into uh, downsizing their land in order to get a loan. And then when they're not getting their loan in a timely fashion, so the farm loan has to come in at a certain time of year in order for them to be able to purchase the seed, to plant the crop so that the crop has enough time to grow and then they can harvest. And anybody who's ever been in project management or is even trying to get a kid out of the door ready for school in the morning recognizes that this is a problem. If anything along that chain breaks, it all topples, right? So if you don't get the seed in the ground, you cannot possibly harvest because it's not ready. If you don't get the loan in order to buy the seed, or if you get the seed and it's subpar seed that only gives you half the yield, how are you paying back this loan? Right. It's the margins are so impossibly exactly. thin anyway. Yeah. God, that's a, and then, that's a shocking stat to me. That, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, talking about what, like 12, 13, 14% of the population controlling 1%, 2% of the. <laughs> yeah, well, we are quickly becoming land. the people that we claim not to like, where 95% <laughs> of the land is owned by 5% of the people kind of thing. Yeah. Well, but, and, and, you know, I, I think this is going to be a recurring conversation that I'm having down here in my time, but in New Orleans, it's especially, but the agriculture in the south was run by african-americans <laughs> literally <laughs> define irony <laughs> <laughs> and now they're getting run out 
Yeah, well, it. for so yeah. many reasons, is yeah. that true? But we'll go with, uh, I guess, uh, the sort of middle of the road answer for that is that uh, post-Civil War, when there were no slaves or enslaved people to work the land for free, there was a lot of land that was sitting unused and unusable. And so there was a shift to the West Coast, which is in part of the way that California became such a hotbed for growing and agriculture. So there was a shift out west where there was a, a lot of innovation around growing on smaller swaths of land. And the government actually purchased or gave loans and grants and support to farmers that were in the west to purchase uh, machinery where they could farm greater and faster and bigger, right? And so when you think about all the thousands upon thousands of acres that were used for sweet potatoes and sugarcane and cotton, right? Most people don't ever think about cotton, but it is a thing that grows in order to make your shirt. It's not just the thing that you walk by in a museum and think, oh wow, how awful that must have been. There was a reason they were growing cotton. But the thing is that as the market shifted and expanded, it was a lot easier to deal with the farmers in California than it was to talk about dealing with rebuilding a different structure in the South. Hmm. So even though the land was always fertile, if there was no free labor right. and there was no incentive for machinery, it was a lot harder for Southern growers. Now, People had to get their own shit together and how they relate to each <laughs> other before they can start growing down here. Uh, so much there so much but <laughs> but I mean there were still there were still sharecroppers there were still folks who uh, who owned lots of uh, and, it, and it wasn't just black sharecroppers right um, there were a lot of those sharecroppers that despite the fact I mean and not that long ago the it was the 50s and 60s where these were folks who were being denied the right to vote and these are folks who are mobilizing in order to be able to change the way that they were moving in this world. Food is inextricably linked not only to social but environmental and economic justices. That feels like as good a place as any to leave it, not least because I don't usually have like a an ending <laughs> bell or a ringer. But, but I, your daiquiri's done? <laughs> I feel like that's the... That's the end? <laughs> <laughs> that that sound is definitely the the closing bell on the stock exchange. The and right now I wonder what would have happened had we gotten larger. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> We'd still be going four hours from now. Um, I could do it. I feel like I, I feel like what I just got was like the course syllabus. You know, like, like <laughs> the outline of all of the things that we could talk about. So the the best thing that I could say about that is that you have Green Pepper Podcast where you are diving deeper in these issues. Uh, all the time, and I will put it in the show notes and drive people over there so that they can get a sense of uh, of all the things that you're talking about in greater depth than a fool like me with a giant daiquiri could ever get to. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Pepper Bowen. <laughs> the trip from Luminary Media and Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Taffy Mukanyadze is our editor and the gin floater on the daiquiri that is this show. Emily Marinoff is our producer. Music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Next week will be my last in this ridiculously kind-hearted town. 
I will spend it with the incredible Dr. Howard Conyers, rocket scientist by day, whole hog barbecue pit master on nights and weekends. Now for a word about Luminary Premium, our future and fabulous home for this show. It is a platform for a diverse and amazing array of podcasts that will be yours ad-free for just $7.99 a month. We have a pre-sale offer for listeners to the trip. Sign up to Luminary Premium before April 22nd through luminary.link backslash trip, and you'll be enrolled to win experiences from some of Luminary's most exciting creators, like Dinner with Guy Raz, or a personalized podcast about you from Lena Dunham, or perhaps a Brooklyn day drinking and or day eating crawl with yours truly. Go to luminary.link backslash trip to sign up today. That's luminary.link backslash trip to sign up before April 22nd. Terms and conditions apply. As a bonus, you'll knock a dollar off your monthly price for the rest of the year by signing up early. No purchase necessary. Must be 18 years or older and a resident of the continental United States. Sweepstakes ends April 22nd, 2019. There's still time. Void where prohibited. We could not do this show without Luminary. I love them already, and I hope you will too.